It's 2023, and what is the state of journalism today in our great country of Canada? Well, today I'm going to be talking with our guest, the great Holly Doan, the publisher of the Black Locks Reporter. Welcome, Holly. Nice to see you, David. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense, and innovation. It's urban. It's rural. It's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. Well, Holly, it's an honor to have you back again on Leaders on the Frontier. We want to cover a lot of ground today from the world of Black Locks Reporter, and I love it. We uh, at Frontier, of course, subscribe to it. And uh, so do so many others. So I encourage people to look at Black Rocks as a, as a source of news because I like that it's so factual. You're really looking at the facts. Um, so what is the Black Locks Reporter and what is your focus? Well, Black Locks Reporter, for those of you who don't know us yet, we are marking 11 years in business this October. Uh, we specialize, we are small, independent, unsubsidized media outlet based in Ottawa. You, and, no government money, Holly. Uh, no, we uh, we don't accept media subsidies. We are opposed to Bill C-18, which we can talk later to you. Mm -hmm. uh, we do not take any secret deals from um, the, the big tech platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, we are not funded by charity or political donations or any benevolent benefactor. We are 100% subscription-based with... Uh, subscribers and licenses, subscriptions starting at $314 and up from there. And we specialize in high volume, five stories a day on federal affairs, no press releases, no question period, five stories a day. And it is aggressive coverage. It is unique. Uh, it focuses on access to information, bills, regulations, uh, public accounts, federal court rulings, tribunal rulings, um, and committee testimony. And there, uh, I, I like to joke that there's two words you'll never hear at Black Locks, and that is sources say. Okay. That'll kill you. That'll kill you in this environment. We are 100% document driven, the government's documents. All right. So what a brilliant way to pursue factual accountability journalism. That's what we do. We do government accountability journalism. Uh, the, the funny thing that I've learned about that since being in this business is that government accountability journalism means that your friends change. It means that when one government is like we have have the uh, the, the distinction of being uh, blacklisted by two successive prime minister's offices and your content will be perceived as partisan depending on the partisan person who is throwing the mud at you. <laughs> so, you know, we, we try to stay friends or frenemies. We try to stay fr frenemies with, yeah. uh, with everybody because we know that all political parties' mm -hmm. um, fortunes change and therefore our reality will change too because we'll be holding a different government to account. Uh, exactly. So you're very factual oriented and, and nonpartisan, which really makes a lot of sense. Um, so it's fascinating. Last year, when we talked about the state of journalism in, in uh, 2022, there were some really great stories. And, and every day, as you're alluding to, you get in your mailbox 
um, highlighted stories based on these factual documents, things that are really quite gobsmacking. And so I'll give you an example from 2022, and, and you know them well, Holly, you and your team, you revealed the story that the federal government, because your focus is the federal government, that there was they were looking seriously at a home equity tax, no less, and so that went pretty viral. And then there was the um, the whole revelation that they were looking at taxes on trucks of all things, and that went big time. So there's all these stories um, week after week that Black Blacklocks kind of leads the way at revealing what's underneath the rocks. And um, so my question to you is, um, when you look at um, some of the highlighted stories from this past year, what, which are, what are some of the, the key ones that come to your mind? Well, I think about as the pandemic uh, was winding down that last miserable summer, say 2021, um, there was, um, the health committee before adjournment that year had asked the Privy Council for all records dealing with pandemic management. Mm -hmm. And um, the, there were um, some 200,000 documents and they had delivered around 7,000 before Parliament adjourned and shut down that line of inquiry. Uh, the opposition has since called for pandemic investigation, pandemic inquiry. Uh, we haven't even been able to get past 7,000 documents, but the materials that we found in those 7,000 were pretty good. You know, the details on uh, providing uh, um, $350 million to a Montreal company to build or to make masks when they didn't even have a factory. Oh, yes. um, the uh, ventilator contract that went to an ex-liberal MPs company, mm -hmm. though the ventilators had not been approved by Health Canada. The $150 million that went immediately to SNC-Lavalin to build field hospitals that no province or no department or no health authority had asked for. And the follow on that is that when the health minister testified before the Senate during this session, he said he didn't know where they were or what, what the status was on whatever happened to those field hospitals. We just know that SNC-Lavalin got a call from a middle manager in uh, procurement and wow. got that contract right at the get-go. Unbelievable. So pan pandemic contracting was a big story for us and actually drove subscriptions as Canadians realized that a lot of these details were not being reported by mainstream media. Mm -hmm. So but to put things into context, though, Black Locks is you're very unique and you're covering a huge stage of documents and information. I mean, in some ways you do an incredible job, but you're, you're are you are you scratching the surface? Is it just the tip of the iceberg here? Would have to be. I mean, the, the one thing that I should say is that we do this kind of work not only because we devoutly believe that through exposure of government waste, mismanagement, and cronyism, mm -hmm. that the corrections will be made and that Canadians will get better government. Mm -hmm. We believe that. This isn't gotcha journalism. This isn't partisan journalism. We'll do the same thing to the next government and the one after that. Mm -hmm. But we think that uh, because of uh, limits now on access to information because it's dysfunctional because of a government that is increasingly secretive and even some of the documents like we have we've taught ourselves over 11 years where and how to find these documents a lot of reporters will say to us where did you get that how do you know about that 
Well, it's it's a little bit like learning how to do the checks. You know, any fledgling local reporter will go into work in the morning and say, okay, what do I do? I check with the cops. I check with the weather office. You know, I check with the fire department to see. Well, we have learned how to do online. Government Governments are mandated to post their work online in many cases. But one of the disheartening things is now we're finding increasingly they are learning or looking for ways to hide documents that they are mandated to uh, present. So, for instance, a story just this week is that the Privy Council is refusing to release any information, any study, research, surveys they have done that is connected to behavioral science and the pandemic. Ooh, what do they mean we don't by know that? What, we don't, well, we'd like to know the answer to that question. What, do, what are you doing? What are you, what are you studying? What behaviors are you studying and why? And maybe um, that's something that Canadians would have a right to know since it's their money and research done on their behalf. But the Privy Council has refused to comment on it and they won't tell the requesters and they won't tell the people involved. Wow. So even... Um, even without the access to information problems, the government is, this government is hyper secretive. You asked, you said, I've seen other governments. Yeah, I've been around in Ottawa since uh, the fall of the Mulroney government and the start of the Chrétien government. And I don't ever recall a government as secretive. No kidding. Well, and, and this is so important. Like if you look at the bigger picture, as you know so well, you really can't have a democracy unless you have many things, including a really robust free flow of information and including a strong and robust media. Is that That is at the heart of this, is it not? The government also has become, and other reporters have commented on this too, that the frustration in getting answers to questions, uh, basic questions go, uh, questions go ignored, unanswered, uh, the operation of government and the communications, we call it the communications industrial complex, mm -hmm. they, they are uh, contrary to what you would think should be the case, where if a reporter calls a communications person in government and asks for an answer to a technical question, let's say, that the... The, the job of that communications person should be to connect you with a director, with someone with technical expertise, mm -hmm. uh, an, an analyst. Uh, the purpose of communications now is an intelligence gathering exercise. Their job now is to collect information on you, the requester, to find out what it is you're asking. So the two mm -hmm. questions are, what are your questions? What are your debt? What's your deadline? In other words, oh. tell us what you're doing. And tell us how long we can get away with not answering this question. You're kidding. And, so they, they flipped it then. It's not about serving the public. It's about serving themselves in a way. It's collecting what information on what, what media is doing. And so uh, we actually don't really, at Blacklocks, don't bother with communications much anymore. They, they don't like that much. But it doesn't, to put in, uh, you know, bumper sticker slogans, that are offered up that in no way answer our question is not a service to the public, nor does it is even a service to journalists who are taught to get both sides. Just putting in what they said when it had nothing to do with your question is actually a disservice to the audience. So the, the method of our journalism is to, why would I ask a communications representative what the what the answer is when I can just read their emails? Wow. So I'm, I think most Canadians would be kind of shocked to hear that like because we, we'd always we're used to the kind of this innocent image of 
you know, the, the tussle of a newsroom where, you know, representatives from the government are, are, are um, being asked tough questions by the media and there's a sharing of information, but eventually, you know, they're able to get to the truth and bottom of a story, but gosh, how do you get to the bottom of the story? If, if, you know, yeah, in, 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 in the old days, like in the nineties, when I first came to Ottawa, it was not uh, unusual to get a uh, assistant deputy minister on the phone, even to uh, explain something. And now they are protected by a phalanx, a phalanx of comms guys to collect information on what media is doing and funnel it back to the center. Okay, so in by, by, by comms people, you mean communications staff mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that are working for that minister or the government, the prime mm -hmm. minister's office, That's and right. they're there to run interference on everything, really. Is that right? But the, that's right. But you know what's what's disheartening, and we see through access to information and reading their emails, what's disheartening is how many people in media acquiesce and 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 vomit up their questions. You never this this was a principle going back to, you know, ink stained scribes, uh, you know, directed by nicotine stained editors. You don't okay. you, my questions are none of your business. You put me with the interview and they'll ask the questions. Wow. Uh, but you'll be surprised how many reporters give up their questions because, um, and how many reporters go to work in communications. And so it's no wonder that the public can no longer tell the difference between government messaging and media messaging. Sometimes I can't tell either. So, so in 2023, you're saying that there's a kind of a dynamic where not only do you have a revolving door of media people between the media and the government working for communications but also you have use the the phrase vomit up questions <laughs> like what do you mean by that in the context that they're not holding their own questions but just kind of following the cue of what the government wants them to ask. in other words the communications person is not going to help you if you don't tell me what your questions are and so once i know your questions i can write up the government messaging answers and then you will take them and that's what you will put into your story wow. and then you'll have both sides so who is serving whom here uh it's 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 messaging it's just government messaging uh that's that's worming its way into news copy because reporters themselves are either um green or tired, wow. or overburdened, uh, as newsrooms hollow out. Well, that that is such a shame to hear that in 2023, because we do need strong media. We need strong journalists, and uh, it, it sounds like they're being blocked or or they're going along with it. Well, so that's why you find another way to do business, and that's black locks. Okay, wow, what a what a revelation again. So speaking of journalism, what would you say? I mean, you've worked at senior levels as a journalist at all the, the key networks from CBC, CTV, um, among others, and, and so many domestic and international posts. What would you say makes for a strong or great journalist? I'm not sure what a journalism professor would say or what other journalists would say, but I can tell you what I think. Um, I think the ability to bird dog the facts is a given. The ability to push through the messaging that comes at you, if we're talking about reporting on government, is a given. I think the public expects that. The journalists that I have come to admire are those who are fearless, those who don't give a damn the kind of pushback they're going to get from comms guys, from the prime minister's office, mm -hmm. from Twitter, from partisan trolls, 
the people who uh, are able to ignore that because they know the story is right and they know they've done their work and they mm -hmm. know that it's a higher purpose. Yeah. And, and there are people who do that. And I, I admire that fearlessness. Mm -hmm. And we've, we've seen some pretty fear, fearless journalism, but perhaps not enough of it in the last year. I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking of Sam Cooper. Exactly. I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Bob Fife and Steve Chase. Yes. Um, you know, whatever you see with grief they get, either at committee or on Twitter, that's nothing compared to what they're getting behind the scenes. And in these days, most media outlets don't have uh, a management organization that's willing to back you up because everybody is um, worried about pushback, worried about mm -hmm. government subsidies. I mean, people like to say the media is bought off. It's not an exact tra uh, transaction. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you just, the, there's a meeting of the minds if you know what's good for you. Mm -hmm. and you want to stay in business yeah well it's interesting you mentioned those uh three outstanding journalists it was is quite a revelation to see them in action uh uh working at some very important stories and with courage i would say and uh i think that really frankly increased their credibility in the eyes of a lot of the the public i've heard from so i thought that was very impressive so well uh, that, i think that's that's really good that you cite them um but another part of the, the world of journalism is the so-called rise of activist journalism. And we've seen this past year, I would say, almost like a, a hyper rise of all kinds of activist causes from the trans issue to climate alarmism uh, to um, perceived racial uh, injustice. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on. It's incredible. Has that kind of undermined the media? Like how what? What's your advice on, on how to kind of see those kinds of issues as we see, we see the rise of activism journalism? I, I think activism journalism has taken hold in the absence of real journalism. When real journalism leaves the field, all sorts of other things will creep in there. Mm. What, what do I mean by that? We've talked about this before. Once upon a time, uh, journalists uh, graduated from college or university and they went to some little job in Truro or Red Deer and they covered school board and they covered highway wrecks and then maybe they graduated to City Hall uh, in, um, in Saskatoon or Cornwall and then after that maybe if they get picked up somewhere they'd get a shot at a provincial legislature and so this was my course so by the time I'll just use myself for an example. By the time I came to Ottawa, I already had 11 years covering all those things. Wow. And journalism is an apprenticeship system. You can't learn everything you need to know from university. You have to learn on your feet in the field. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon now for journalists to graduate Carleton or Ryerson or the University of Regina. And, and so what happens then is then when those reporters with little life experience little background experience as journalists, uh, they're asked to cover something, let's say um, a farm subsidy bill or a business subsidy bill. They don't know anything about those subjects. They might never, if they're from urban Ontario, they might never have met a farmer. Mm -hmm. They might not know any small business people. And so they, they have gaps in their knowledge and they don't know how to frame a story with facts. And yeah. so this is where the activism can sneak in, in that they, in their 
overzealousness to make a better Canada and change the world. And by the way, I never thought it was my job to make a better Canada. Mm -hmm. Not at all. That's right. not my job. Mm -hmm. They will uh, replace in their stories the places where facts used to go or should go because they don't know how to find those facts. They don't have the experience. They will replace those gaps with adjectives or concepts that describe the way they believe the story should, mm -hmm. could be or should be from their perspective. So sometimes they are committing act, acts of activist journalism and don't even know they're doing it. Now, once upon a time, you would have some editor like a Lou Grant type character that would tell you, where'd you get that? Where'd you get that, Holly? Or that lead is awful. Or we covered that, we covered that story six months ago. You mm -hmm. don't have anything here. Those people too have been uh, retired, laid off, fired, and there isn't the staff anymore. And the people that are maybe approving your story before it gets in the paper, mm -hmm. uh, might, they might be 35 years old themselves. Yeah. We need those Lou Grants from the, what was it? The Mary Tyler Moore show? Exactly. The That's right. Room. We need and those mentors. Right. And I mean, you know, you remember Mary's reaction. <laughs> But, you know, it's not that those reporters always mean to be activist or mm -hmm. to have woke narratives. And I, I think when you look at a story, if you look for facts and, and, and understand the absence of them, then you'll understand that it really was just somebody who didn't know what they're doing, as opposed to somebody who wants to change the world. Now, I'm not saying that those don't exist, but usually they will migrate to specific kinds of independent media, let's say that are... Uh, climate-based or environmental or social issues or uh, right-wing partisan, mm -hmm. um, you know, are civil libertarian in their view. I think we all know who those, who that array of left and right-wing organizations mm -hmm. are. Um, but the, the, the fact that some journalists end up in jobs where they are not yet prepared to find facts and deliver facts is not really their fault. It's the fault of a failed industry. Exactly. Yeah. So it's pretty humbling and in all fairness to journalists, there's a lot of variables at play. And so I, I like the idea the insight that you have that an apprenticeship system is very important and uh, it takes a great deal of skill and experience to be a great journalist. Um, so I did want to shift then a little bit to the whole area then of government funding. We've seen that unfold. Um, I think we chuckled last time about how the uh, government funding system was not only extensive, some 2,000 outlets, it's kind of amazing, but it was all going to be temporary, Holly. Do you remember that discussion? And um, it was about uh, defending democracy when, in fact, it seems like they've doubled down on funding to try to look at how they can increase it. Um, has that acceptance of government funding compromised the credibility of a lot of journalists? I think that the the subsidies, and you're right, the, the former chairman of News Media Canada testified in May of 2019 at Finance Committee, I was there, that this isn't a, quote, bailout, he said, this isn't going to save media, we, quote, have to save ourselves. Mm -hmm. That's what we were promised, that it was temporary. Well, did your local paper get any better since 2019? when this temporary money was awarded to journalism. And I should mention to you as well about that, even the subsidies, there was $595 million assigned for income 
tax supports to publishers. That's each reporter, each head in your newsroom would be uh, worth $13,500. And that's what the, the subsidy was worth. Well, guess what? The subsidy program is undersubscribed. What does that mean? That means that there are so few people left in those newsrooms wow. that the publishers could not even soak up the amount of money that was available. It is, as of January, it was 43% undersubscribed. That's amazing. So that, that was a black box story. That's an example of information. I'm not going to use my, um, my platform to preach mm -hmm. about subsidies. I'm just going to tell you what happened. And yeah. I'm going to tell you with the government's figures. The assistant, um, assistant associate deputy minister of heritage testified before committee in April that, quote, journalism remains in decline. It was an acknowledgement that the subsidies didn't work. So what do we think? What difference has it made? None. But the problem, the difference that it does make is that once you are a, a recipient of welfare, it is addictive. The businesses needed to retool. They needed dramatic, uh, uh, they needed to be torn down and built back up. And Indeed. all of a sudden it was delay the pain, which we now are seeing a, a cas cascading through, this, through, the, through the media industry. That is uh, 1,300 layoffs at Bell Media, at the company I used to work for uh, wow. last month. Uh, and now we see Post Media with the wolves at the door and the Toronto Star, the same. And they have announced a merger that surely everybody can see is designed to suck the marrow out of those companies. Nobody, nobody thinks that's about making better journalism. Well, so this is a very tough time. And that so-called vision of funding really hasn't panned out and worked the way people envision it would. It's not really moved the ball forward when it comes to a very important industry, has it? Yeah, it, it's it's not an industry that can be subsidized because there's not enough money for the amount of money that ha the amount of change and retooling that has to be done. There's not enough money to save the business model as it exists, which is what they're trying to do. They're trying to prop up those dead trees, yeah. and, and 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 what it, what it has done, unfortunately, and we were very concerned about this, which is why we didn't take the subsidies, even though other smaller outlets did. And we are keeping track of those and will remind people moving forward who took the subsidies. Um, they, they poisoned Canadians against us. What, what do they, you mean they, 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 further, they further eroded trust. Yeah. We are all bought off. And it doesn't matter whether you're taking the subsidies or not. They think mm -hmm. we're all bought off. And so as Mr. Rodriguez, the heritage minister, suggested earlier this week that that there will they will still provide resources, even if no agreement is reached with the tech giants. Quote, we will provide resources to support Canadian media. Most of us took that to understand the word resources means subsidies. Wow. Because the, the, the income supports to publishers, the media bailout, runs out exactly one year from now in 2024, June of 2024. And uh, that remark unless he was shooting from the hip because he didn't know what else to say, suggests the government is preparing to renew the subsidies if all else fails. Wow, that's incredible. I did want to ask you a question related to funding because I, I think it's a profound discussion about credibility with the audience, no less. Because uh, if you don't have that credibility, um, what are you really doing? Um, what is your future? Um, that, that's a huge problem. 
but in 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 the case of funding do recipients of the program have to sign an agreement that they have to cover news stories in a particular way um their uh, uh, coverage as it exists now is assessed by a quote independent panel of mm, our peers or our betters most of them are academics or former journalists and then if that panel judges the journalism outlet to be real journalists uh doing real original content um doing fact checking policies of corrections etc mm -hmm. then they are recommended for funding to the canada revenue agency and then it goes from there but one of the conditions of accepting funding is that you must, the, the media outlet must agree to provide a right of rebuttal, something called the right of rebuttal. And now that I guess in theory applies to uh, David Lease. If you want to complain about a story, you must be given the right of rebuttal or the Canada Revenue Agency if they don't like your story. And now we were talking about communications people earlier in this conversation, that is their job to correct media. That is their job to ask for corrections, even if the correction is, and, and we, a story we had this week that the Department of Health has had 248 corrections. This is according to an internal government document, yeah. 248 corrections in the last two, two and a half, three years. Some of them may be as simple as you put the wrong name in the photo. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. 248. That means the government is now in the business of correcting media. And why not? You signed a right of rebuttal when you agreed to take the money. Wow. So so this is kind of the, the uh, again, the powerful revelation of what Black, you and your team, Black Rocks is doing in terms of showing the facts of how there's this emerging communication industrial complex that is really controlling the information that Canadians drink in every day. Right. And the, the government on the political end of it, they will say they have to do it to counter misinformation. But one of the largest perpetrators of misinformation, I don't say this with any uh, kind of classic notion no. in my head, or but the, one of the largest perpetrators of misinformation is the government and the communications industrial complex. Yeah. The first thing you'll hear yeah. is that story is not accurate. And that's a that's intimidating. That's the way they get you to change the story and take it down. Exactly. No, th this is um, really quite disturbing. I, I had the honor of uh, traveling to, to many different countries in 1984, and one of them was the former Soviet Union. I remember distinctly meeting with many Soviet journalists, and it's very interesting at that time because they would explain, well, we're, we're journalists, but we work with the government on what information they need us to communicate. So it was a totally different view of what a journalist was. And it, it is just very disturbing to hear you outline how that system works, quite frankly. Well, that was the same in China. That was the same in China, too. I'm not comparing us to the Soviet Union or China. I, I wouldn't go that far. Right. I think that's a bit extreme. But I think that with with de degraded and eroded journalists, journalism and, and newsrooms full of young people who haven't the... Mm, experience and maybe are timid like to to push back against that and and uh managers who don't want the grief because the subsidies are hanging in the in the breach then i think that 
it just becomes a meeting of the minds. Exactly. And it's, and it's far easier to say, hold the opposition to account mm -hmm. than it is to hold the government to account yeah. because the government has a, a fearsome machine that mm -hmm. will push back. Well, and, and I think, you know, to my point about the Soviet Union, how do you pursue a story vigorously, bird dog the story, as you, as you say, and go after it without any fear if you have this system constantly on your tail. Um, and so that's my, my question is, how has this funding really affected or changed journalism? I don't want to say every journalist is bought off because I don't believe that. Right. But I, but I do, I have seen stories pulled. I have seen, uh, as I mentioned, these, these, an avalanche of corrections from the department now where that, you know, you never got away with that in the nineties. You would, who had the audacity to, yeah. to call the, the, the bureau chief of say CTV and tell them that story is wrong. You must take it down and do it yeah. 248 times. Wow. Where do they get, where do they get the empowerment? Yeah. They're out of their lane. That's media. totally inappropriate. Yeah. It's a weakened media. So also, do you see um, lots of situations where you just don't hear the dog bark? You just don't hear about that story? Well, that's the other thing, isn't it? And I, and I, would all, I always urge people who are in a, in a lather about woke reporters or reporters with narratives, it, it's not really what you read in the story that's troublesome. Although you may see things, if you're familiar with a subject where you know that's not right or it bothers you, if you're a partisan, it's the stories they don't do. Mm. That's, it's the dog that didn't bark. That's the story that can hurt you. If you don't know who got pandemic contracts, if, if you, well, for instance, if the government, this was a story Blacklocks had this week, if in, in uh, 2017, the government announced the Strategic Innovation Program. And it was much trumpeted and everybody covered the news release and everybody covered a minister, then minister Navdeep Baines, promising uh, 56,000 jobs would be created when they uh, created these innovation superclusters. Mm -hmm. That's right. Right. Well, the fact is, uh, through documents, we reported even at the time, a couple, two or three years ago, that only 7,000 jobs were created. And we got a lot of pushback. They called us misinformation on that. Well, guess what? This past week, we found another document with the industry department acknowledging that billions of dollars in this $7 billion program went out as uh, grants, not loans, and will never be recovered. And um, half, a little under half of the projects that went out, the money that went out, went to Quebec firms. Where's the superclusters? Where are the innovation superclusters that is going to make Canada a leader in innovation? So we just don't talk about that. You can't cover an announcement or cover the news release and then not follow up five years later to see what happened. No, right on. No, and, and that's part of what your brilliant work is, you know, when we describe it as accountability journalism. When you hear an announcement, you are systematically putting that in a file, bringing it back and doing the follow-up. That's and right. all That's based right. on the government documents. It's not like an That's opinion. Right. It's the facts, right? So the business model is, obviously, you can see, if, if someone, if the minister has a news conference today and everybody goes to that and they cover the, the new climate change program, and let's say we went and covered that too, well, how could we sell that? Like, we, we don't take subsidies. We... we we have to sell our work. And so 
nobody would buy that because the mainstream media is full of it. They're flying reporters to Vancouver to cover the climate change yeah, announcement. Right. Yeah. Canadian press is get uh, it's an advancer. Wow, what a scoop! They get an advancer yeah. the day before on the climate right. change, a climate action yeah. project. When they so should be our, digging into the files. But it's too soon. So you know what you would have to do is read Blacklocks eighteen mm-hmm. months from now as we right. start right. to uh, go through the government audits, the government audits of department pro- programs are audited. That was mandated by the Harper government. Those have to be uh, audited and then they have to be posted somewhere. Exactly. And so that's when you write about it to find out if maybe it w- was effective. Maybe the innovation program was effective. We didn't think it was going to be from what we were seeing with that as our reporter reporting progressed. But it's it's the follow up that matters, not as much as the announcement. The announcement is propaganda. The announcement is messaging. The announcement is communications mm. deliverables. It it's the results that matter. All right. So that's a, a terrific challenge to every citizen then to be very discerning. Uh, and I'm not saying we don't commend the government or governments when they do a great job, but too often they're setting their own bar, their own goals, their own measurements. And then which you, move you the yeah, and move. they're all flexible they're all dynamic and changing it's all mm-hmm. absurd isn't it um listen governments we we don't why should we celebrate governments every step of the way when programs work that's the right. that's their job mm-hmm. they, they campaign they promise something they deliver it mm-hmm. it works that that's that's what they're supposed to do mm-hmm. in accountability journalism it's turned upside down a little bit in that we look for problems look at david we sell bad news and if people don't like that yeah. then they yeah. don't have to pay for it but what i'm telling you is that the bad news is the dog that didn't bark the mm. bad news is what can hurt you that's your money that's our job exactly. to report on what government does Government oh. accountability. There's no such thing as opposition accountability. That would be absurd. Yeah. So, so bravo on you for, for, for providing that incredible service. So I did want to shift a little bit to something that's related here, the so-called Bill 18 regarding, um, you know, taking the, um, this huge, massive Internet um, that, you know, if we look at the, the, the social um, media providers like Facebook, um, the whole idea was to take revenues from them and shift it over to the media, the, the so-called content uh, providers or producers. So how, what's your take on Bill C-18 and how that's all shaken out? It's been really quite a week. Uh, it's my view that the government has understood that the media subsidies have been really unpopular and they're a dog anyway, and they're never going to save the media. And so they wanted to shift responsibility away from this and get the tech giants to pay for allegedly what they are stealing from content. Mm-hmm. That That's the messaging. That's not actually, in, in fact, how it works. Uh, most media outlets at the onset of the internet and with the rise of the social media giants have offered their content for free Mm -hmm. in the hopes that somehow they will get multiple visits, multiple viewers, multiple hits back on their sites, and they'll somehow be able to monetize that. And when they found they couldn't monetize it after a generation of giving it away for free, they now accuse the tech giants of stealing it. Mm 
So C18 was was meant to ask the tech giants to pay a portion every time you link to a news story that you see on Google or Facebook. So what we, Bill C-18 passed on the 16th of June after very long and detailed committee hearings and immediately Meta, Facebook has said, we're out. Um, Meta has said, the, by the way, the, the Parliamentary Budget Office has said that that deal would be, if executed, would be worth about $329 million a year to all of these media recipients. Now, the misleading part about it is it was supposed to help the publishers they're the ones that are dying. Mm -hmm. And instead, we learned that the lion's share will go to the CBC, followed and by the other the broadcasters. CBC. CBC, followed by the other broadcasters, followed by Post Media. Now, why is that? Because those are the media platforms that are shotgunning their content across the internet for free. So they have the biggest reach. So therefore, they stand to make the most money on links. It's so ironic, it, isn't it? Right. And, and it's been estimated by people familiar with the, t the newspaper industry that the amount then of money that would come to all of the print print publishers together would be somewhere between 60 and 80 million dollars. That's not, not enough. enough. That's no. not enough. So in the, in the meantime, if C-18 is allowed to become, well, it is law, but if it proceeds, then the secret deals and there are 18 of them, secret deals worked out between the tech giants and media organizations, including the Globe and the Toronto Star, those deals are dead. Because if we have to provide uh, money payment for links, then we're not going to give you your, your millions that we're giving you in these side deal arrangements. So what C18 has done is furthered the mess. Meta has said we're out, take them at their word, they've said I've heard the Canadian spokesman for Meta, Facebook, say Canadian news links, not a big part of our business. They're worth about 300 million a year. And if we do this, well, then everybody's going to want the Canada deal. Great Britain's going to want the Canada deal and Germany's going to want the Canada deal. And, and we're not in the news business. That's really not Facebook. So we're out. Mm -hmm. Google, I'm told, is still thinking about it. Google, this is, and this is just, my interpretation of what's going on, it, we who knows, <laughs> is maybe willing to kick in some money into some kind of program with a cap that would provide a little bit more money to all of them, but it still wouldn't be enough to save them. And if it was, how do you explain this sudden and dramatic announcement this week that the Toronto Star is merging with its arch enemy, the Post Media newspaper yeah, Exactly. It, it, they're foundering. So this has arguably made it more complicated and gosh, how are we going to get out of that? Well, mode? yes. And, and what it's done though, is it, it part of the bill's misrepresentation, according to its proponents, was that it was going to help small providers like us. Well, all the small media that relies, we, you wouldn't know about black locks if you didn't hear about it over the internet. Mm -hmm. So to me, even though my content is locked behind a paywall, you have to pay to read it. I have access to 33 million, potentially 33 million Canadian internet users. I don't have to go door to door uh -huh. and flog my product. Here's how you're going to hear about it. Uh -huh. So those other outlets, and I'm thinking of a, a company called Village Media in Southern Ontario, a very successful company that has been running a chain of local online yeah. news websites, has their business has relied almost entirely on that. And they have said they're dead if, if they can't, if they're, 
content is is not can no longer be accessible through Google or Facebook. But the government didn't want to hear that because this is the dark part about C-18. It's not about saving democracy. It's about helping the big outlets, the dying business models, who the government cannot envision uh, living without. And it's also about stagnating the smaller upstarts mm -hmm. because the government believes that the political upstarts, the independent media is fearsome that they are not, I don't mean we are, a, we, we are a, a threat in that we cannot be controlled. We don't take the subsidies. We wouldn't rely on uh, payouts from C-18. And they fear the left wing and the right wing of all this, this, this parade of, of media outlets. And so it, it, it was insincere, the bill. It not only was there to prop up Eaton's department store, it was there to make sure the small boutique operators weren't part of the spoils. So, so Holly, that sounds like a, a brilliant summary of it because it's nuanced and it's really speaking to the fact that it's not as simple as the, the overall arching message that the government is trying to portray uh, mm -hmm. is not at all accurate. You, you have a, a very complex media environment today. And, and I think it's true what you're saying. We have to look at how do you support the entire ecosystem, including the smaller actors, and they're not they're not as controllable as as those large ones. And so the government has an interest in supporting those larger ones. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, I think the larger ones are a little bit more reliable, and it might you know be a way of maintaining your 32 percent in the opinion polls too. Uh, but it, the thing is. When you talk about we have to support, people ask me, well, what's the answer then? Well, you know, see if subsidies don't work and C-18's not, obviously it's a big mess and more consolidation appears to be happening and we know that's not good. Uh, what's the answer? Well, the answer is a retooling. When Eaton's died, like you thought, Oh, I, I thought, oh my gosh, where am I going to get my mixing bowls and my pantyhose? <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I still found other places came around to sell me my mixing bowls and my pantyhose. And I, I'm being a bit facetious. I don't mean to mm -hmm. compare journalism to mixing bowls. Uh, one is a little bit more important, but the concept is the same. So if right. you get small, that, listen, Canada a hundred years ago had many more times the number of media outlets than we have yeah. now. Most people don't realize that Winnipeg at the turn of the century had like 91 little local outlets. Amazing. There were little outlets you've never heard of. In Toronto, there was one called the, the Bloor, uh, the Bloor, oh, I can't even remember the name of it. It served the Bloor-Danforth corridor and it yeah. was local. Yeah. Some of them even pooled their news out of Ottawa and shared it all and then just provided their local news on top of that. So, Small media outlets to survive will will serve their local customers, their their niche, if you have it. If it's not local, it's maybe niche. Black Locks could be said to be a niche. So, but not as long as the big trees are there occupying the space. So what has to happen is that the big outlets have to get smaller. What does that mean? How do they, somebody smarter than me told me that, look, I think that the, the, little outlets can get big. I don't think big outlets know how to get small. So if you're, um, if you're a big daily paper, what do you, maybe what you have to do is, is 
pare down what you do, stop trucking newsprint, stop covering sports. Let's say you're going to be a municipal paper. Well, why not be the best municipal paper you can be? And you cover City Hall like the do. And that's exactly. what you do. Wow. And then you leave somebody else to cover Ottawa. Mm -hmm. Right. Wow. That, that's just your business model. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that it immediately replaces Eaton's department store, that you got your one stop shop when you picked up the Winnipeg Free Press or the Toronto Star. But you have to start retooling at the bottom. You have to let innovation take take place. And that's not going to take place so long as you support the old business model, mm -hmm. because the old business model is the devil, you know, and it and it's the one the government is hanging on to. We have to be bold. Yeah. So let let innovation come forward and let's see the green shoots and and get out of the way. So that's right. That, that's a great challenge, Holly. So related to renewal, um, we've seen the last several months a lot of um, analysis and and uh, I think, frankly, good commentary about the challenges with our freedom of information system. Uh, some have said it's broken. Um, what do you think? Uh, is it is it uh, serving the public or is it all just a big shield for the powerful? Well, it's not even some who've said it's broken. The uh, <laughs> the information commissioner has said multiple Indeed, times yes. in testimony at a committee that it's broken. She said, in fact, the last time, um, a, a month or so ago when she testified, she said that it, it is so... Uh, hobbled, I, I don't remember her exact quote, but she said, effectively, it doesn't even exist anymore. It doesn't exist anymore. Wow. Um, you know, the, the Globe and Mail with Tom Cardoso and um, Robin Doolittle have done an excellent project where they've been digging into the access to information problem and getting people to send examples and talking about the problems. And I commend them for that. Uh, access to information when it started was innovative in the world. When Pierre Trudeau in introduced it, it was among the first, we were among the first countries to do it. Over time, it has been so eroded that it is now not not only the one of the worst in the world, it has become, uh, instead of a way for citizens to access information, it has become a shield for public servants to avoid releasing information. Why is that? Uh -huh. Well, it's because uh, the, the um, reward and punishment system is backwards. So there is no punishment in the act. There is, there is no penalty in the act for not releasing information. But if you release information that embarrasses your minister or embarrasses your director or embarrasses your prime minister, the prime minister, then there might be, there might be punishment for that. So what has to happen is you have to reverse that. So there has to be either administrative monetary penalty or job dismissal, or jail time. I know that sounds crazy, but other acts of parliament carry jail time. This one carries no penalty. Wow. There has to be some penalty for not releasing information, for ignoring deadlines, for blowing past deadlines. And so that then, then there is impetus, there is encouragement to release because there's punishment if you don't. So that it's backwards right now. You're rewarded for not releasing. Mm -hmm. I, I like your solution. I Again, if you don't have the free flow of information, you don't have accountability, you don't have democracy, do you? Can I tell you a little anecdote about access to information that happened only recently? Um, I mean, Blacklocks has uh, something like a thousand access to information requests ongoing at any time. Wow. I think our record was four years on one at one of the, the Prince Rupert Port Authority 
I don't even remember what the story was. It wasn't even a, it wasn't even a bombshell. It's just that they weren't going to give us the information because they didn't have to. Um, we were party to a court action recently last month and the, um, the defendant happened to be the department of justice and Blacklocks was the plaintiff. It concerned uh, copyright and the counsel for justice Canada presented to the judge that public servants had to check our work. And that's why they had accessed our work and shared passwords and distributed without license and without payment or permission. They had, that was their job. They had to correct our work, though our work was never corrected and they never contacted us. But one of the things they told the judge was, and this has to do with access to information, is that we were a bad actor because we used access to information to file requests to find out uh, what the department was doing with my product. Wow. And they, so we were, that was, this was evidence, according to the Department of Justice, that we were a bad actor, some kind of like a terrorist or something. Wow. Now, That's unbelievable. It, it, it's mind blowing. That, but this is an uh, example of the attitude. The judge, to his credit, responded, and mm. I quote, access to information is their statutory right. And how else would they know how their copyright was being used? Exactly. Unquote. <laughs> Because as, as, as ex-Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin said, mm -hmm. is that access to information is a citizen's right to know what government is doing so they can take action. Exactly. It's a statutory right. They don't see it as a statutory right. Public servants and governments see it as an intrusion, uh, as troublesome, and as potentially very dangerous for the public to know what you're doing. Wow. So the world is a little bit upside down in 2023 when we reflect on the history of the Access to Information Act. I think that was in 1982 of all things. That's right. And yep. we have a situation now where the government thinks it's about serving themselves and not the citizen. This is the problem. That's one way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't mean to laugh at your situation. It must've been incredibly frustrating, Holly, and the time and expense, but this is how they, um, basically uh, undermine democracy um, from my perspective. Not only does the government see partisan media outlets as a threat, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They also see media outlets who like to read their emails as a threat. They see, they see monsters uh, behind every media organization except those who don't rock the boat. Wow. Let, let me give you an example. So you remember um, the former heritage minister, Melanie Jolie, said... You know, I media is it's important that media hold us to account. I want to be held account to held account, she said. Mm -hmm. Right up until the Heritage Department is asked why did it hire an anti-Semite? And then that question mm. was never answered. Right. The next uh, heritage minister, Mr. Rodriguez, said, I like tough questions. Ask me the tough questions. I attended a, a World Press Freedom event where he told the, the reporters in attendance, ask me the tough questions. That's great. Right up until Sam Cooper wants to know about the 11 MPs who had contacts with uh, Chinese officials yeah. prior to election. Then, then suddenly uh, we're not answering tough questions. We are obfuscating. We are blocking and we are uh, engaging in any process we can to avoid a public inquiry that would really have the tough questions. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is um, it can't be about rhetoric and words, it's got to be about action. And this whole nonsense undermines people's trust 
in government and we need high trust if we're going to have a high functioning democracy. And the thing about act, yes, you need information. You need transparency yes. is absolutely critical. But the thing, every single government since Pierre Trudeau probably has promised to make reforms to the Access to Information Act. I'll give you every cent in my bank account if somebody actually does it. Wow. Every government says they want to do it. And then when they get into office, they will tinker around the edges and say, look, we, 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 we made it better. And some governments did. Um, Stephen Harper made uh, Crown Corporations accessible to the access. They weren't before. Mm-hmm. Um, Scott Bryson, the former Treasury Board president, yeah. capped the fee for an information request at $5. So they nibble around the edges, Uh but I mean, tell me a government that promises to actually make information available by by default and be more transparent with media requests or requests from the public or not see the requester as a predator, as we were described in court, and I'll vote for that person until I'm dead. Wow. Well, you heard it on here today by, by you, Holly Doan, about the importance of this information and for democracy. And I, it's quite disturbing uh, to hear this. And we really need to be fierce, fearsome uh, when it comes to pursuing this information for uh, everything's really at stake because all of this relates to freedom of expression, freedom of speech, which has really been foundational to move our society forward, hasn't it, Holly? Yeah, and you know that all these attempts to uh you know, monitor the internet to to penalize for hurtful but legal comment on the internet, the uh, move to create a digital safety commissioner that would be uh, responsible for chasing down people who make remarks, Um, the supports to media that acts as a harness on media freedom. All of these things are an attack on the freedom of expression, I think. And media control in particular, you know, media freedom is guaranteed in our constitution. What does that mean? Freedom of expression in the Constitution. That means uh, freedom from government regulation. Exactly. That's what that means. Yeah. What else does it mean? Who else is going to who else is going to limit my freedom? Yeah. You're not going to be able to do it. But I guess the Minister of Heritage can. That's what it means. So we are trespassing on everything, all the foundational things that we used to believe in in this country. Yeah. Wow. And well said. And, and we can't take it for granted. So this gets me to my next question around, you know, there's a lot of confusing terms used like misinformation versus disinformation. So what do we mean by those terms, Holly? I don't get too obsessed about them. I'm more worried about just finding facts in my (laughs) business. Um, But my understanding is that misinformation is a a misrepresenting or a twisting of the facts or an omission, whereas disinformation is actually something that's wrong to lead you to a different conclusion. So, and there's what, another one called malinformation. Yes, like, and malinformation. Oh, you got to Google that. Right, but but what I find so ironic, even paradoxical, is the whole throwing around of these terms by who is it again? Oh, yes, a lot of government leaders and actors as a kind of a pretext to do what? To shut down discussion, to shut down the facts. Is that, am I misreading that? Well, and I, and I do believe it when I say that, well, there might be misinformation out there from online bad actors. I I see, I see those and I just 
block them and don't follow them. Now, maybe if some people can't parse through that, I, that's a problem. But one way to replace in, misinformation is replace it with information. Right. When, infor- when the people who are supposed to be providing information leave the field, when they leave the arena, then all these bad actors will step in there. So with, with the failure of journalism to be providers of, of real information, and I don't mean press releases or today's theater in question period, but to provide real information, as we were talking about earlier, about the outcome of government programs, not merely the announcements, then the, the, the perpetrators of misinformation will find their way into our narrative. Exactly. And, and that that's that that's the problem. Yeah, and, and also we need to encourage each other to commend each other in a respectful way to dare to have the confidence to have a real debate. Healthy debates and discussions are good, are they not, Holly? Well, sure. And when reporters uh, actually find some information and report it, who the hell is a government MP, some MP from Whitby, to call that reporter up before committee and bully him exactly. for his story? Yeah. Who, who is the authority from wow. the MP from Whitney on uh, Whitby on on Chinese interference? To you can't have it both ways. No, this is utterly wrong. Media and- yeah, shame on that MP. So the Twitter files. We've learned a lot about misinformation, and the Twitter files. For those of you who don't know about that, was really quite a revelation. As Elon Musk purchased um, a crime scene, not a social media company as we originally thought it was. But we found out a lot of things and we see the receipts. Uh, it's really quite shocking. And, and it was interesting how he engaged. Uh, it's interesting. Elon Musk engaged a whole, uh, t- uh, uh, you know, an incredible team of journalists to examine this and articulate for themselves with integrity about what was going on. So we found out a lot of things, including how 18 um, U.S. government agencies were systematically censoring, blocking, changing, canceling all kinds of information on every key narrative on the Internet from COVID-19 to a myriad of other things, just like narrow political agenda. It was really quite disgusting. So was the, were the Twitter files a surprise to you, Holly, and the reaction that came out of that? I, maybe this is going to surprise you. Um, I find the, um, the flood of American news is another problem for Canada. Yes, that the flood of American news replaces the news that should be about Canada. And so that people who are at home watching CNN start to think, start to think that that's their narrative is about us. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's not. But however, having said that, we did find out that um, a government department and the, the, the individuals were named uh, contacted Twitter and Facebook and asked them to take down a column by Edmonton's Sun columnist, Lauren Gunter. Uh, and so it was happening here. Do I think it was happening to the extent that we see in America? I'm not really sure. But then Maybe it's the dog that didn't bark. I think Matt Taibbi, the reporter who broke that, said there was some evidence of Canadian mm-hmm. departments involved. Yes. But I, I never heard uh, many stories other than that one. Did you? I had heard a, a, about a number of them, but I, I think your main point is very, very important. And that is how much U.S. information spills, obviously not in just not into Canada, but really around the world and how mm-hmm. that drives these dysfunctional narratives or lack of information when in fact Canada could be 
well, as, as I, I know your vision is, could be a, a wellspring of vigorous journalism and information, ironically. I'm always almost grief-stricken when I see any story, uh, let's say a lead or the second story on CBC or CTV that's about an American story. Right, I agree. I don't want to hear about Hunter Biden laptop yeah. or the Twitter files mm -hmm. at the top of my Canadian newscast. I think that yeah. is replacing the news that they're not bothering to get for you about what, there's plenty going on in this country. And I am... You know, it's, it's funny, it's so cute to think, like when Sheila Copps was heritage minister in the 90s, she legislated that the American news magazines, Time and Newsweek, what had to have a Canadian insert in the yes, middle. Yes, I remember that. Yes. She was trying to battle this Canadian pollution, this right. cross-border cultural pollution. How quaint to yeah. think of that now. We are overwhelmed by it. So again, if we leave the field, all that American garbage... Right on. Well, and, and the other irony is that it almost seems like some politicians in Canada use that as a kind of a foil <laughs> to try to transplant that narrative um, simplistically. Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade. My, yeah. my goodness, could it happen here? Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. Um, or or the whole Black Lives Matter protests and, and all this. Well, I thought that was in a different country, and yet you're just uh, transplanting it here to kind of almost divide people. It's almost absurd. So speaking of events in Canada, um, one of the biggies that we talked about last year was, of course, about the truckers' convoy and the incredible difference they made and what happened there and, and how so much of the mainstream narrative that they reported on was utterly wrong, utterly false. And um, I think that did have an impact on the media. Or what do you think? On the impact, uh, I think it had a, in the middle of, subsidies which we were already trying to live down i think that the coverage of the convoy further deepened mistrust mm -hmm. uh, i think and if it didn't deepen mistrust it deepened divisions where partisans went further into their own corner right and became more hostile towards each other and even the judge even judge rollo concluded that others could come to a different conclusion than he did which was very unsatisfying. And, you know, those, those things are still working their way through the court. But uh, I do think that the truckers convoy, and I, I, I do think it had really far reaching effects that are going to echo forward in a way that we might not even still appreciate. No, I agree. I, I have heard this from so many um, colleagues internationally. Um, many of them are the leading health scientists in the world, like Dr. Martin Kohler from, from Harvard and, uh, and others who said the truckers convoy in Canada made a huge impact in terms of waking people up to realize that perhaps the narrative that they had been given was not uh, really based on the science, ironically. So that was really quite a revelation. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not comfortable with these kind of conversations. I, let me just tell you how Blacklocks covered the convoy. Uh, we didn't, we felt that, and our office is right on Wellington. It was going on right outside the door. You know, our editor waded through the convoy every single night to walk yes. home. Um, but we didn't cover it, per se, because we're not the trucker accountability website. Mm -hmm. We're the government accountability website. Mm -hmm. And so our question was always to ask, what did the government do? What did the government do and why? 
when the Minister of Public Safety testified before the Senate that police and law enforcement authorities had advised him to invoke the Emergencies Act, we found out later when the police testified that that wasn't true. So that would be that committee testimony and any documents that we managed to get. That would that was the way, that was the very careful way that we covered the trucker convoy. Very, very careful not to take any size because because you don't you don't really know. You don't really know. I mean, it did turn out. Yeah, no, there was no arson fire. There were no guns in trucks. And again, all those those things were wrong. So this is why experienced reporters, adults in the room are are necessary in our industry to be very careful about information and not replace facts like we were talking about earlier in this interview, not replace facts with narratives. Well done. And that's a lot of that happened there. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well said. So I did want to shift a little bit to your observations then about the current federal government. Um, I was fascinated to read um, the former finance minister, uh, Bill Morneau's book, um, Where To From Here. It's a, a kind of a reflection on his time in government, but also um, a so-called roadmap for prosperity for Canada. And And there's a lot of good insights in the book, one of which was that he reflects on a bit of his frustration. I don't want to try to speak for him, but I, I, what I read is, is a frustration with the, um, the, uh, the federal government in the sense that um, there's too many times when they did not run on policy, but rather on communications. And the example I want to give is the CERB benefit, the benefit that was given to Canadians because of the, the incredible uh, policy of pursuing a lockdown of all things, never heard before, of locking down Canadians, uh, they were going to offer a, a financial compensation. And uh, the number was was fairly modest. It, it, the, the, the team that came up with the number was Bill Murnau's team in the Ministry of Finance. And then that figure was given to the Prime Minister's office. And to their chagrin, their surprise, that number went up dramatically to $2,000 a month. Now, you can see how that would be very disconcerting because what happened is they were asked, well, why did you increase it so much? The response from the prime minister's office apparently, apparently was that uh, the number just appeared to be too low. And from a communications point of view, it needed to be dramatically increased. So that had a huge domino effect, The you know, because uh, everybody would be lining up and say, well, you gave them individuals this amount of money, why wouldn't you give us something that was kind of similar? So, uh, you know, to the point where Canada, I believe, has the highest per capita uh, GDP debt in the world among the G7. So this is, these have huge ramifications when you don't, when you move away from kind of sensible, rational policy thinking to the realm of just communications. But does that kind of story surprise you, Holly, as you look at at the scene in Ottawa? It doesn't surprise you. Not at all. And, you know, there was a lot of money shoveled out the door during pandemic. The vault swung open and there were very few checks and balances. CERB was the least of our troubles. We were, they were handing out pandemic contracts left, right and center. But one of the things, and we've talked about this before, that the health committee did in, um, in a year ago before parliament adjourned, they had asked for uh, all documents, concerning pandemic management. 
that would capture ones like you're talking about, I guess, all, all documents concerning pandemic management. And the Privy Council had given them out in dribs and drabs, and some 7,000 of them had been released before Parliament was prorogued, and that was it. And nobody ever got them. Well, in those 7,000, that was a lot, and they would dump them every Friday night. In those 7,000 documents uh, that we would spend the weekend looking at, thanks very much, um, there was endless examples of communications staff in the Prime Minister's office running the pandemic, yeah. Telling, yeah. The, telling the department what to do. So let me give you, I didn't see those CERB documents that Mr. Morneau is referencing, but I, we did see, let me give you a small example. Uh, the government of Korea, because we didn't have masks, because we threw out all the masks and closed the warehouses, uh, the government of Korea gave Canada a shipment of masks as because as, we were in trouble and as a thank you for oh, our cool. help. Yeah, for our, our, our assistance. What a great story. Uh, Thanks, thanks to our veterans. Yeah, great. A nice story, right? Well, the emails from the communications staff within the prime minister's office said, no, we're not, we're not going to tell anybody about that story. We're not playing that up. Well, oh. I think it's an insult, an insult to, to Korea and to veterans. But the reason was is because they didn't want people to know that that there was such a drastic, they didn't want to highlight that there was such a drastic shortage of PPE, that we didn't have our own masks, that we're taking charity. They didn't want other, other documents, they didn't want people to know that like nurses were putting on garbage bags because they didn't have proper gowns or there were, they were reusing masks mm -hmm. because that wasn't a good news story. They actually, one of the people actually said, we need a good news story here. Wow. To lift people's, to lift people's spirits. And meanwhile, the kind the pandemic is so hard, you see. And meanwhile, the kind Korean government had given this as a gift yeah. uh, to help. So maybe that's Canada. a small example. Maybe that's a small example, but that we they in some ways the twenty-something comm staff in the prime minister's office was having the time of their careers. They were emailing departments, giving them instructions. They were calling up orders. They were because all the all the decisions were based on. The, the deliverables, the communications to Canadians, which was coming from the senior staff in the prime minister's office. Wow. So what a powerful story again, um, Holly, about uh, the important work that you're doing in terms of accountability and, and being very fact-based, ironically, mm -hmm. on based on the government documents themselves. It's, it's really tremendous work that you're doing. So bravo. Thank you. Thank you. So when I look at the... Um, the state of journalism in 2023, it sounds like a pretty mixed bag. We know it's so important. Um, and if you look at hope and action that we can take as citizens, um, what can we do to help move this agenda forward and help strengthen journalism? It's such a critical part of democracy in our country. Any advice? Well, it would be too easy for me to say, uh, carefully analyze your media options, both large organizations in mainstream and small media outlets. Mm -hmm. Try to set your partisan views aside, left or right, and have a look at an organization and ask, who are they? Are they journalists? Are they activists? Are they uh, partisans from another life? Mm -hmm. Are they journalists? What is the, and, and, and subscribe pay. And I know people say, well, I don't have so much money and my, my, so much of my money is already going in mm -hmm. to the CBC and to the uh, other mainstream media. But uh, it's not too crazy to say you should write to your MP, particularly if your MP is a liberal. 
Absolutely. But, um, I also think that I look at some of these constituency associations, uh, liberal and conservative across Canada, they come to their conventions with really good ideas and the parties debate them and vote on them. Now, those don't necessarily become policy, as we know, but it's time to take access to information more seriously. Why are you leaving it to half a dozen journalists who are overworked and maybe on the edge of being laid off or retired? Like Canadians have to, uh, if you're an activist in your local constituency association, I think you should participate in that way. Access to information is important. Look into that one. Ask your party and your your to, to make changes, to commit to changes, because transparency is is key. Um, I think you go a little easy on individual journalists. Uh, this is a this is a, an industry that is in crisis. It is a wholesale depression. If it was any other industry, if it was mining or forestry, like people would be in, in Ottawa, like with pitchforks, demanding that the, the government do something about it. And I think that individual reporters can only do so much. So I would say go easy on them in social media, but where you can, subscribe, speak up, offer testimonials, say what you want, tell the government what you want. Um, that happened with, say, to use another example, the China interference story. There was huge pushback and uh, somebody resigned because of it. But nobody's pushing back over s this subsidies to media. And I think, I think that people have to, in their own way, find a way to do that. And that doesn't just mean sitting in, in your basement, like grousing on Twitter. Well, well said. Holly Doan, the publisher of Black Locks Meet Reporter. We're so delighted that we could have this conversation. And thank you so much for your courage and your leadership. Well, I think, you know, I lived in China and we had a phrase there. It was called, uh, it said, Niguo Jiangla, which means basically translated, you overpraise. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And Shesian. Uh, thank you. Zajian. <laughs> Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.